I'm Sarah Lippman. Welcome to Torah Imecha Nach Yomi with the OU Women's Initiative. Today we will be learning Divrei Hayamim Chronicles, Volume 1, Chapter 14. We left Chapter 13 with the Ark of the Covenant, the Aron, temporarily at the home of Oved Edom, a Levi, following the death of Uzzah. The follow-up to that move will come in Chapter 15, and in the meantime, Chapter 14 will tell us of three other events— Huram's gifts to David, the growth of David's family, and two battles with the Plishtim. Verses 1 and 2. Vayishlach Huram, Melech Tzor, Malachim el David. Huram, king of Tzor, sent messengers to David. Vaatse Arazim, Vecharashe Kir, Vecharashe Etzim, leave no slow bias. He sent them with cedar wood and with stone workers and woodworkers, or carpenters, to build a house for him. Vayeda David, and David knew, Ki hechino Hashem lemelech al Yisrael, that God had firmly established him as king over Israel, Ki nises lemala malchuso, that his kingdom had been elevated ba'avur amo Yisrael, for the sake of God's people, Yisrael. This is a fundamental thinking of a true Jewish king, says Abarbanel. It is absolutely clear to him, he understands he's in service to his people and to God, and that any greatness he achieves in his monarchy is for the sake of his people. It's clear that Huram's gifts carry deep significance for David, but why is it that they do so? Vayeda David, and David knew. How did David know that his kingdom had achieved a level of permanence? Says Radak and others, because kings were sending him gifts of tribute. But then why is Huram the king of Tzor specifically mentioned? because he was the first king to bring such tribute. The Vilna Gaon, though, gets a little more specific. David saw that Huram's country, Tsar, which is Edom, was submitting to him. What does the Vilna Gaon add to our understanding by telling us that the place called Tsar here is part of Edom? This goes back to the very beginning of the relationship between Esav and Yaakov, the twin sons of Yitzchak and Rivka, and ancestors of the countries Edom and Yisrael. Even before they were born, Shem had prophesied to Rivka that Shnei goyim bevitnech, there are two nations within you, v'shnei leumim mime'ayach yivparedu, and two countries will diverge from inside of you, ul'om mil'om ye'ematz. Might shall pass from one regime to the other, v'rav ya'avod sa'ir, and the elder will serve the younger. Generally speaking, the Torah encourages us not to see others as competitors for resources. God has enough to take care of everyone without it coming at anyone else's expense. However, Yaakov and Esav's relationship is unusual and a little more intertwined. They had the potential to be shnei goyim, two proud powers working cooperatively to build the world into the ultimate society, Esav providing the financial resources, the infrastructure, manpower, organization, product management, and physical security necessary for society to be stable and able to afford to think about higher things. Yaakov would be providing the leadership in Torah learning, in education, morality, and avodas Hashem, service of God. They were twins. They could have been a perfect team. The potential in that relationship is classically illustrated in the friendship of the emperor Antoninus of Rome and Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the prince of Yisrael, as told in the Gemara in Brachos, and cited by Rashi there. 
Antoninus and Rebbe learned Torah together. They shared a royal table with every type of fruit and vegetable in all seasons. Emperor Antoninus and Rabbi Huda Hanasi are a little vignette, a little glimpse of what Yaakov and Esav could have been to one another. However, when Esav chose to relinquish the spiritual role of Bukhar, the firstborn son, to Yaakov, he in effect was saying that he would not represent the family in their avodah, in their service of God. We talked about this aspect of the birthright in chapter 5. Esav thus divorced himself from that partnership with Yaakov. He left everything that Avraham and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka had worked so hard to build. He left the family. In refusing to take responsibility for the dependence of the family, he gave that role over to Yaakov. However, caring for the spiritual health of a family requires a certain amount of material strength. It requires safety, a home, plenty of food, security. And so with that responsibility that Esav handed over also came the physical blessings to support it, which Yaakov was able to use to fulfill his role. That material blessing that went to Yaakov, Yisrael, is absolutely tied to and dependent on that mission. Ula'om mila'om ye'ematz. Might shall pass from one regime to another. Says Rashi there, the two of them will never be mighty simultaneously. In other words, when one falls, the other will rise. History has shown a constant tug of war between these two brothers, Yaakov and Esav. Yisrael's strength is in their bond with God, ambassadors of the divine to the world. When Yisrael keep the Torah and live in accordance with God's will, we come into our strength and into our mission. We're empowered over Edom. When Yisrael transgress God's will, when we lose focus on our mission, we lose strength, and Edom is able to rise in ascendancy over us. Yaakov and Esav are competing for the same power. It's the greatness of world leadership. Who wins at any given moment depends entirely on how well Yaakov and his descendants are keeping their mission strong. Therefore, says Rav Moshe Eisman in the Art Scroll Divrei Hayamim, this is why the Vilna Gaon sees that Huram's gifts are particularly significant. He is the king of Tzor, which is Rome. Rome is the capital of Edom, the descendant of Esav. So Huram's gift, willingly given in the service of building and establishing the strength of a Jewish king's rule, someone descended from Yaakov and building his palace, that's a divine message to David Kinisei Slamala Malchuso, that his kingdom has in fact been raised high. The Vilna Gon's approach may also answer another question we have here. In the Book of Shmuel, which tells the history of the early monarchy chronologically, Hurum sent his gifts as soon as David conquered Jerusalem. No mention is made of transporting the Ark to Jerusalem until afterward. And then both the first abortive transfer, in which Uzzah died, and the second successful move are told together, two halves of a single event. In Divrei Hayamim, however, the first transfer of the Ark is moved up to sit between the conquest of Jerusalem and the gifts of Huram. What is Ezra communicating with this? In what way does this ordering of events more accurately portray the inner essence of those events? For all the pain... The fact that Hashem rejected the transfer of the Aron by wagon also meant something very positive. Yes, indeed, it was fitting for the Levium to carry the Aron directly on their shoulders. You may remember that in chapter 13, the Vilna Gaon explained that David doubted if the Jews of his era were worthy enough to be direct bearers of the Holy Ark. That may be why he used the wagon. The overwhelming message of this failure refutes the doubt. God is asserting emphatically 
that Yisrael is the nation in which God finds his pride and the justification of the world's mission. Under David's leadership, the inner core of sanctity shines brightly. They are a people able to carry the ark on their shoulders. A mamleches kohanim v'goy kadosh, a priestly kingdom, a holy nation. Churam's tribute, Esav, Edom, acknowledging the greatness of Yisrael, David, is a more cheerful affirmation of the same divine message. As the prophet Yeshaya says, Avdiato Yisrael, asher becho es pa'er. You are ready to serve me, Yisrael. It's with you that my glory shines. You are dedicated, and therefore you are good enough. You are holy enough to be the vehicle of God's glory revealed on earth. Israel has indeed attained a high spiritual level. The fact that the interrupted transfer of the Aaron places the Aaron for three months in the home of Oved Edom, his name literally meaning Edom serves, where it's a source of overwhelming blessing, may be a further connection between the events of chapter 13 and chapter 14. Perhaps along the lines of Vayihiyu chol Edom avadim ledavid, Vayosha Hashem is David bechol asher halach, all of Edom became servants to David and God gave victory to David wherever he went. We'll see that coming in chapter 18. It does seem that we're being given a multimodal message here, that our success and our strength comes from our purity of heart and our service to Hashem. Verses 3 through 7 tell us that David married more wives in Jerusalem, and David fathered more sons and daughters, in addition to those born during his time in Hebron. These are the names of those born whom he had in Jerusalem, Shamua, Shovav, Nasan, and Shlomo, Yivchar, Elishua, and Elpelet, Noga, Nefeg, and Yafia, Elishama, Be'eliada, and Elifelet. It seems that there's some connection suggested between these events. Huram sends materials and craftsmen to build a royal residence for David, and David decides to add to his family. Also striking is the term Od Nashim, more wives or additional wives, when the narrative in Divrei Hayemim has not really told us about his prior wives and children. And we can't miss the emphasis on Jerusalem here. Vayikach David od nashim Yerushalayim. David married more wives in Jerusalem. Ve'ele shmos hayeludim. These are the names of the children born asher hayulo Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem. Ibn Yechia interprets this step according to the idea that who a person is changes in response to their actions and in response to their environment. A person whose deeds are holy or who spends time in a holier place becomes holier himself. He becomes changed. This, says Ibn Yechia, is why David wanted to build his family in Jerusalem, in order that he merit to father children as a resident of Yerushalayim and as a king, which, without a doubt, these two changes will confer a higher level of greatness in his children. As we have learned before, being a child of Jerusalem is something extra special. Whether one is a product of Jerusalem by birth or by longing for it. So Huram offers to help build a bias, a home for David. But the word bias literally means inside, because the essence of the home is the people who are sheltered within it. Perhaps it's not a stretch to suggest that building a physical home would cause David to think even more about the family within that home. Verses 8 through 12 and 13 through 16 describe two battles in which David defeated the Plishtim. And the Plishtim heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, so all the Plishtim went out to seek David, and David heard and went out against them. And the Plishtim had come and fanned out through the valley of Rephaim. 
And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Plishtim, and will you deliver them into my hand? And Hashem said to him, Go up, I shall deliver them into your hand. So they went up to Baal Pratzim, and David smote them there. And David said, Hashem has broken open my enemies by my hand like the breaking of water. They therefore called the name of that place Baal Pratzim. And they abandoned their gods there, and David commanded, and they were burnt in a fire. Says the Chida in Chomasanach, So long as David was just a local warlord and a thorn in the side of King Shaul and his men, the Plishtim were more than happy to ally with him. But now that they saw that he was acknowledged as king of Yisrael, they came out to fight with him, hoping to prevent his power from expanding. However, fighting with David isn't just fighting with a son of Yishai. David, by keeping constantly aware of God in his life, and in having all his choices driven by the desire to do God's will, is truly the representative of divine will. He's an ambassador of God. And just like if someone takes action against a foreign ambassador, that ambassador's government will take it as a national offense, not just a private one. An attack against David is not just directed against him personally, or even against the whole Jewish nation. An attack on David is an attack on God himself. In verse 12, we learn that David destroyed the Plishtim's abandoned idols by burning them. In fact, that is the halacha. One is supposed to destroy or dispose of avodazara, idols, that are found in such a way as to not get any benefit from them, and so that no one will find and worship them in the future. In the parallel telling of this event in the book of Shmuel, there's an indication that David melted down and did have benefit from the material of some of these idols. The Talmud Yerushalmi in Avodazara resolves this by explaining that the wooden idols were burned. Itai Hagiti, a compatriot of David's who was a plishti, denied the idols' power. He possibly also broke them, thus canceling their meaning and significance. Such a bitul or nullification of Avodazara can only be done by someone who was themselves originally an idol worshiper. That made it permissible to break down and melt the metal idols, allowing the metal to be reused. Subsequently, Itai Hagiti converted to Judaism. Vayishal David Belokim. Verse 10 tells us that David asked God. David asked the question by means of the Urim Vitumim, the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol, which had jewels engraved with letters that illuminated in response to questions of national urgency. In asking for divine guidance before waging war, David shows his true genius as a Jewish king. Even when it might seem obvious that he needs to fight, it's defensive. David takes nothing for granted, and as God's emissary, seeks instructions before acting. But even more wonderfully, in verses 13 and 14, Vayosifu od plishtim, the plishtim again arrayed themselves to attack a second time, and Vayishal od David belukim, David again sought God's instruction via the Orem Vitumim. This demonstrates David's righteousness, says the commentary Minchas Arev. David didn't take a step without God's okay, despite his past military success. And even though he had just beaten back the Plishti army with God's blessing, it would be natural to assume that he could win them again. Nonetheless, David is aware that all is in God's hands, and he asks again. He did not rely on past guidance or on past success. Verse 16, And David did as God had commanded him, and they smote the Plishti camp from Givon up to Gezer. The phrase, And David did as God had commanded him, seems like it could be extra. It reinforces the idea that indeed, David's test here was his ability to ask God for guidance. David's test? The Mefarish cites the Midrash, 
God's quality of justice demanded that David be held to the same standard as Shaul had been held as king. Why should Shaul, a righteous man, have been passed over in favor of David? Shaul had lost his opportunity to rule because he failed to follow God's instructions precisely, which were to wait a full seven days for Shmuel to arrive before the battle with Amalek, as he had been commanded. Therefore, very early in David's reign, God sent the Plishti army against David. David asked for guidance once and was told to engage them in battle, which he did. Then the Plishtim came back, and David made no presumptions about God's will. He asked a second time and was told to divert around them an entirely different tactic. Despite the repeat attack and the inexplicable change in instructions, David followed God's commands precisely, proving for good his suitability to be the king of Israel, a mighty leader, mightier because he walks humbly before God. What seemed unexplainable or even irrational in the moment was in fact a key milestone in David's development into Malchus, royalty. We may see a hint in the text to this heavenly justice in the use of the word hasev, turn away from the plishtim. This echoes the transfer of royal power from Shaul to David, which also uses the word vayasev and lehasev, God turned away or transferred the kingdom from Shaul to David. Homasanach emphasizes vehaya letovaso. This was to David's benefit. We're not entirely accustomed to the idea that a nisayon, a challenge, is truly for our own benefit. The Or HaChaim, in his commentary to Barashas chapter 131, says, God created humans to progress to more elevated levels than where they begin. This is the me'od, the effort, in the goodness of creation. It is by means of a person's actions that their soul climbs from level to level in greatness. Ashrei enosh yasezos. How fortunate is a person who can achieve this? What a blessing it is to be able to actualize higher potential by choosing to do the right thing, especially when under pressure. David could easily have been thrown off by a second battle on the heels of the first. He could have questioned the conflicting sets of instructions or taken independent action, as leaders are expected to do. David did lead the people, but he led them by following God. David, Melech Yisrael, he is first and foremost an Eved Hashem, a servant of God, like every other Jew. The chapter concludes with verses 16 and 17. Vaya'as David ka'asher tzivahu ha'elokim, and David did as the Lord had commanded him. Vaya'kues machane plishti migivon va'ad gazra, and they smote the plishti encampment from givon to gazra. Vayetze shem David bechol ha'aratzos, and David's fame spread throughout all countries. And God cast fear of David over all the nations. Thank you for learning together with me. Le'ilui Nishmas Rose Foreman, Rachel Rachel Basarye Leib, and Rachel Zeitlin.